Welcome to Senior Living Visionaries, a podcast for senior living leaders who are looking to stay ahead of the curve in the industry. On this show, we feature leaders and innovators in senior living who are pushing the boundaries and creating new, effective services and solutions. And now, let's settle in as host Jennifer Drago connects us with today's guests. Welcome to Senior Living Visionaries, a podcast for senior living leaders who are looking to stay ahead of the curve in the industry. On this show, we feature leaders and innovators in senior living who are pushing the boundaries and creating new, effective services and solutions. And now, let's settle in as host Jennifer Drago connects us with today's guests. So welcome to Senior Living Visionaries, where we showcase the leaders and innovators who are shaping the future of senior living. I'm your host, Jennifer Drago, strategy consultant and CEO of Peak Profit. And today I have two wonderful guests with me. I have J.D. Schumann, who is the president and CEO of the Asbury Foundation. J.D. began his career with the Asbury Foundation, serving the Bethany Village community in 2007. He began leading the Asbury Foundation as president and CEO in 2019. With more than 20 years in older adult services, J.D. finds value in partnering with a donor to fulfill their philanthropic passion within their home. And I'm so excited to, um, to speak to J.D. today and to Andrew, who is our um, other guest, also from the Asbury Group. Andrew Jeanette is responsible for overseeing finance and accounting functions of Asbury's not-for-profit system and affiliated ent entities. With more than three decades of experience in finance, he has held senior financial and accounting positions within the healthcare, accounting, pharmaceutical, biotechnology, insurance, and technology industries over the course of his career. He joined Asbury in 2017. Uh, he received his bachelor's degree in accounting from Boston College and his MBA in international business and finance from George Washington University, and he's a CPA, and I'm married to a CPA, so uh, warm space in my heart for CPAs. Great. <laughs> and J.D., I didn't have your, your educational background, but do you want to share your alma mater? Or Sure. Yeah. So I, it was a... Uh, Bloomsburg University and Strayer University is where I got my awesome. my degrees, yeah. Awesome, and um, that's great. Thank you guys both so much. And JD, would you like to share a little bit more about Asbury and the Asbury Foundation for those who aren't familiar? Sure, yeah, absolutely. So Asbury is a diversified services organization. We provide residential assisted and skilled nursing services to older adults in Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Tennessee. We also provide therapy, pharmacy um, uh, services, as well as uh, home health and home care um, uh, to residents really, and IT services really to older adult organizations uh, across really the country. The Asbury Foundation is the philanthropic arm for Asbury communities. We, Our mission is to uh, uh, secure charitable support that enhances the lives of the Asbury family, uh, including both resident and uh, associates. 
uh, our value proposition is to align donor passion to transformational opportunities. And we like to think ourselves as the third leg of that uh, revenue stool for our uh, CCRC division, meaning that revenue comes in either government, resident rates and fees and ancillary services, and then philanthropy. So it, we play a critical role in, in Asbury's financial um, uh, status, so to speak. Perfect. Thank you so much. And for those um, senior living executives who may have a foundation arm as well, can you give us an idea of um, kind of the size of your foundation, both in terms of um, production or however you measure that and staff? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So over the last few years, we've been fortunate enough to grow our team from what had been a, about eight individuals to 13 individuals today. And that that growth in staffing has come alongside growth in philanthropic revenue. We we had been a five or six million dollar a year foundation. And over the last uh, two years, we've seen 11.7 uh, and $10.7 million raised. And this year we're at, uh, I think as of uh, the end of last month, we were at 7 million. So our our uh, philanthropy has definitely increased uh, alongside that growth in staffing. Awesome. And I'm sure we're gonna talk about some of the reasons for that, but I really, uh, my gut is telling me it has a lot to do with how you've organized your strategy and the opportunities that you're making available to your residents and others. So. This is awesome. So let's just start right there. So um, JD, do you want to tell us about Asbury's um, philanthropic pillars? I'm, I, you have a strategic plan, and I know you organize yeah. uh, the work that you do by I don't I think you call them pillars, but and how they were developed. Tell us more. Yeah, you bet. So so it was 2019 when we first started investigating uh, how philanthropy impacts Asbury and how we might. Uh, leverage that in even bigger and better ways. So we, we worked alongside our Asbury Foundation Board to develop a new strategic plan for the foundation. And and it, it officially was approved in September of 2020. And that plan really, it pulled us from this world of benevolent care being our uh, who we were known for, what we were all about, obviously benevolent care being uh, those services provided for residents who outlive their resources. Uh, we, we actually surveyed our donor family uh, in 2019 and, and an overwhelming majority of our resident donors felt like the foundation was benevolent care. That's what they knew us as. And we, we kind of looked at, uh, when we were going into the strategic plan process, we kind of looked at philanthropy like market share, we kind of took a business approach and we, we thought, you know, our, our communities have so much more opportunity for uh, charitable investment, but our residents weren't aware. They, they weren't aware of it because we didn't brand ourselves or market ourselves as a destination for philanthropy outside of benevolent care. Mm -hmm. And we knew that our residents were giving to their alma maters, to their kids' schools, their grandkids' colleges. We knew that they were investing uh, in, in green efforts outside of our walls. We knew that they uh, were investing in the Alzheimer's Association and brain health-oriented organizations outside our walls. Uh, but again, we weren't creating that platform or that environment uh, or awareness for them to give within our communities. So we took that into account when we were developing our strategic plan and we broadened our focus into uh, key areas of focus uh, beyond benevolent care. Now we have uh, obviously, again, benevolent care. We have capital projects that that is uh, 
when you look at philanthropy across the country, according to uh, the Philanthropy and Aging Services study put together by uh, Martin Lundy, capital is the number one destination for philanthropy from uh, older adults living in a nonprofit uh, CCRC environment. So. Uh, so we broaden that within our brand and our outreach. So uh, benevolent care, capital, associate scholarships and education. Uh, when we have our internal surveys of residents and our internal surveys of associates, uh, the word that they use most frequent, frequently when describing the other is family. So we knew that there was a market uh, for philanthropy when it came to, uh, or an, an opportunity to grow philanthropy in our associate family uh, when it comes to education and scholarships. We knew that that was there. Uh, so we have benevolent care, uh, capital, associate scholarships, and education, innovation. Uh, we saw, again, we saw philanthropy going outside of our walls to organizations that were investing in philanthropy or investing in innovation and, mm -hmm. and neat and creative ways to care for older adults. So we saw that opportunity in-house. And then finally, um, we call it special programs, uh, which is really, if you can dream it, it fits within special programs. And it, it really incorporates everything from wellness or brain health efforts uh, to ecology efforts, going green initiatives, uh, outdoor landscaping, et cetera. Uh, it really kind of catches anything that isn't in those other key areas of benevolent care, capital, innovation, and associate scholarships and education. So um, again, we just kind of rebranded ourselves, broadened the opportunities, and um, yeah, we can talk a little later about how our team really focuses on relationships in order to identify the passions of a donor and then tie them to those key areas that I just referenced. That's awesome. Um, thank you so much for explaining that. And I have to say, um, as a strategist, I love when an organization has a really um, just clear strategic plan. And you know, a lot of times foundations, I will say, don't always because they're focused on, you know, kind of one or two areas, benevolence, I think, capital projects are kind of the two areas we see most often in senior living. And the fact that you have this clear strategic plan and you use it to connect with donors to find out how to um, connect their passion, I think it's really, um, I, I imagine it's, do you think that's the key to your success so far? Oh, yeah. I, you know, when we first were talking through this, our board, appropriately so, raised up concerns as to whether or not we would cannibalize giving to benevolent care in order to help uh, fund some of these other areas. And, it, and it's been quite the opposite. It's that rising tide, you know, raising all ships, so to speak. Um, we've seen growth in benevolent care uh, pretty significantly right alongside the growth in those other areas of giving. It, it's definitely been... Um, a success for Asbury in general, because we're pulling in donors, having the, the the intimate conversations about what really drives them. And then the fact that they can invest in their home now really has been a, a differentiator for us. They, that, that idea of investing in a scholarship where you're actually seeing the individual daily, you know, walk in the hall, and that, that's the person you're impacting rather than, oh, I gave it to a school. Not that that's a bad thing, but I gave it yeah. to a school that some kid that came, that's awesome, it's a neat story, but I can actually see firsthand uh, that success story of that. Maybe it's the, the dining uh, room server who's now the res, uh, the the RN supervisor, which is literally a story at one of our communities. Uh, it's just a neat. It's it's a beautiful thing. And it's something that uh, uh, that I'm honored to be a part of. Yeah, that's awesome. So you're bringing true meaning to charity begins at home, right? Yeah, 
Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. So, Andrew, I want to hear from you. So you're the CFO of the organization. No surprise that you'd be a big proponent of um, all the things that J.D. and his team do and of philanthropic efforts in general. But why I understand that you really partner with J.D. and, and you're out um, speaking to the team members about, um, you know, how to partner with the, t- the foundation team and things like that. Tell us why you're a big proponent and how um, how you help JD in his role. Sure. Um, thanks. Well, I would tell you it probably first started um, when JD and I sit next to each other in the office. So we actually collaborate a lot and we talk about yeah. the different things that he's trying to do. You know, he gave you a good overview of the foundation over the last couple of years. And I'd probably say that um, you know, his foundation board uh, also aligns with the overall company's board of directors. And as we were putting that strategic blueprint in place that he referenced, you know, JD's team had already been thinking about that, you know, a few years ahead of time. And for me, it's a pretty simple finance equation. You know, you have a person come on board that works on his team. You might pay them $100,000 a year, and they set a target of you need four or five times your cost as an ROI to bring, you know, to to the um, the combined entity. And and so, you know, that was the easy thing for me to see. But the other parts that you already heard JD talk about was, you know, we don't do uh, like bake sales and we give people pins for things. You know, we've expanded outside of kind of the classic narrow focus to a lot of the programs that he mentioned. And it's really that aligning the donor's passion with what, you know, they're trying to do. I think that's moved the needle significantly for us. And you heard that in his results. You know, classically a few years ago we might have been only five or six million in annual um, you know fundraising and now we're you know over 10 easily you know he's a little bit modest in that our actual portfolio that we manage is closer to 60 million dollars and you know that's a pretty sizable portfolio that meets the needs of a lot of the things that JD and his team are putting together so for me it was easy to see it was also look around and we have a little bit of a captive audience within you know the folks that come to our communities and and look they really want their places to uh, you know grow look nice and you know JD and his team tap into that and not every place is exactly the same some people at a particular location might want one thing versus another but the programs and services that his team brings together you can make them pretty you know the same over your um, different geographic locations but then you tailor it for what's specific to the person um, that's there and we'll probably talk about that a little bit later when we get into hey what are some you know key large uh, donor funded things that you know have been very successful here and the reasons for it but it's really that combination of it's easy to see the return it's easy to help me sell that to the rest of the organization as to why they should make the investment in those people um, to 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 fundraise and the results of sort of they speak for themselves yeah, they sure do. They sure do. So, J.D., you started in 2019. This strategic plan came into place in 2020. Um, as you were kind of um, bringing the foundation to this new, this new place that they're at, what are the obstacles internally, externally that you faced um, as you expanded that philanthropic mission? 
Andrew, it's funny. Andrew mentioned bake sale. I, I think the biggest challenge our industry faces, and it's it, it's it's frustrating uh, if I'm being completely transparent. We have so many organizations that have this bake sale mentality where they treat uh, fundraising or or foundation or development um, kind of at a different level than they might be investing in their operations. Or, uh, and it, it's when Andrew referenced kind of that that ROI that that he looks at, and I mentioned that that stool, that three-legged stool, right? It, it, I I just. I implore our industry to really think differently about philanthropy because you you can easily uh, monitor the results, right? You you can see them firsthand, and and there's I can't imagine that there's a CFO out there or a CEO out there that can identify a division within their organization that's returning 3.5, 4.5, 5.5 their their um, investment. So it for me it doesn't make sense. Of course I'm I'm uh, uh, jaded towards uh, towards the the philanthropic world, but I just it doesn't make sense to me why our industry isn't more invested in philanthropy. I, it, we as an organization, and and I, I Andrew and I give each other a hard time uh, a lot. Uh, we have our, our our desks next to each other, but I really do value his support from a budget perspective because it really has allowed us to expand our team, which has been critical in building uh, a team that has close relationships with the donor family uh, within each of our communities. That's that's been critical because our the foundation has grown as a resource. That, that's a word we like to use as being a resource to our donors. So in order to be the best resource, we need to know what drives them. What is it that they're passionate about? And then where are their needs from a, uh, a financial perspective, from a planning perspective? And it's really grown our, our offerings in ways that, that are pretty significant. Uh, we, we've had, uh, prior to the to the strategic plan being approved, we had not had a living donor give us a seven-figure gift. And since the, the strategic plan and the growth that, that we've been afforded through growing our budget a bit, um, we've had 10 seven-figure gifts. Uh, so you can see that kind of – it it really has transformed um, – the impact of philanthropy on the organization. Uh, and it's broadened kind of what we can offer. We're working with people before they even move into our communities to, to identify ways to help them move uh, to, you know, decrease or eliminate capital gains in, in, in the sale of uh, property, fund an entrance fee, fund monthly, uh, their monthly uh, ancillary fees, et cetera. So we, we've really seen just a kind of a different level of impact within our industry uh, with Asbury Foundation. It's been something that's just been exciting to be part of. Yeah. So you mentioned the bake sale mentality. And does that mean, um, you know, we used to have this discussion with our own foundation when I was in my last provider organization about um, events, galas, walks, and um, things like that. They take a lot of time, a lot of energy. The the return isn't necessarily huge, but there is some relationship building that goes on there too. But do you, do you do events or have you kind of cut them out? We've, we've reduced significantly the number of events that we do because of exactly what you just said. We, we're very data driven uh, foundation and we, we looked at the data and it showed us that for every, for every solicitation that our, uh, uh, development team makes, whether the donor says yes or no, uh, 
So it doesn't matter. It's worth approximately $50,000 to the organization. So every time we are spending hours and hours to, uh, organizing a, a carnation sale where you're, you're going to get, you know, 30 cents for every dollar carnation you buy, you know, you know, it just the, the, the math doesn't add up when, when you could be developing that relationship and, and it equates to $50,000 to the organization, yes or no, uh, from the donor. So that's the kind of data we used. And that's, that's again, why you know, Andrew and the budget team and the finance team here have, have really been such great partners because they're willing to say, hey, yeah, we're going to add a person. We know we can expect, you know, X times 3.5 as a minimum or 4.5 in terms of, of financial impact at that community. But that that bake sale mentality, you, you, you mentioned what's the hurdle. That's the biggest thing because our industry, you know, most of our communities in the nonprofit CCRC world started from churches or from mm -hmm. uh, religious organizations. And, and so that, that kind of same kind of mentality of oh, you need to have a bro to chair let's let's have a bake sale or something yeah. to, to raise money for it we've we've definitely taken a more sophisticated approach and our industry is ready for that it mm -hmm. needs that yes. it's just they're slow to accept that and that's 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 something i hope changes uh uh soon yeah i hope yeah, it, oh, go ahead I was going to say, if I could just interject, you know, we we weren't exactly, you know, we evolved too, right? Our, our foundation started, you know, way back when, and I'd say in the last, you know, three to four years, we've really had an acceleration in how we view things. And it's as simple as, you know, from an operating budget perspective, you know, the, the people that work on the foundation, they're embedded in the local um CCRCs or life plan communities. And when you're looking to add another person, you know, it's hard for the the local executive director to say, well, I'm going to put another $100,000 in my budget. What do I get for it? And we use a simple metric that's used in our system called operating ratio. And all their expenses for those folks are in there, but they really weren't getting the credit for what I'll call the unrestricted gifts that um, JD and his team raised. And so even though they were doing it and they would get it in their operations, it was real cash, they didn't see it in their key metrics. So we just said, let's just change the metric and we'll give you credit for that. And then all of a sudden it was like a, a watershed event. Oh, okay, we'll do it. Even though everything that JD has been talking about, they, they were getting the benefit of that anyway. But it, it got more immediate acceptance across the system. And then I think that also led to you know, being open to other ideas, uh, you know, outside of the classic, you know, what does the foundation do to raise funds? And I think that's really accelerated and taken fire in a lot of our, our places. So, you know, it's interesting if you just change a little metric how it all of a sudden people are, are, are behind you even more than they were before. Yeah. And you're talking about the internal support that you got from other executive from your executive directors to allow right. yeah. JD staff it, to embed in their in their community. Yep. Yeah, even though they were getting the that, benefit for it anyway, right? Yeah, yep. but that, it totally changed everything. Uh, Andrew, I appreciate you bringing that up because we recognize that from a from a accounting perspective or an accounting perspective you're usually not including philanthropic revenue in your operating ratios but we we've had enough consistency we've had enough enough success over time that that we had confidence in making that adjustment and by doing so to andrew's point the cultural shift that happened from 
instead of the executive directors calling me up during budget time and saying, you know, what the heck, you're, you're, you got all these costs in here. Now they're saying they're joining me for dinners with a donor. They're sitting at lunch and they're go they're calling our donors just to check in periodically because these people are investing seven figures into a brain health center for excellence or seven figures into endowing scholarships to grow nurses and which is just a beautiful thing from a recruitment retention uh, succession planning standpoint so the the partnership again not that they weren't good partners before but it's just a whole new breath of fresh air when it comes to internal collaboration in building relationships with donors with because now we're seeing the or metric uh, have a direct impact on the local uh, leadership team there. That's a really good point, Andrew. Appreciate you raising that. Yeah, and and thank you for mentioning budget because that's where I want to go next. I'm curious, Andrew, about you know how do you factor philanthropic support into your operating budget, right? Because we can um, be Pollyanna and put too much potential revenue in and and then get caught flat-footed or, you know, the opposite can happen. So how do you right. incorporate um, that into your budget? What are, what are kind of some of your principles that you can share? Sure. Well, we certainly evolved over the years in how we approach this. And I think I already told one of our secrets where the cost of, of JD's team is really in the local operating budget. And um, you've also heard that we've had some significant increases of the last few years in the amount of funds raised. And when we say that, that's from all sources, whether they're restricted or unrestricted gifts. But when we budget, JD's team has an internal budget that he puts together. And it may be $10 million. I'm just using that as an example. And that's a combination of restricted and unrestricted gifts. And the, the restricted gifts sometimes are harder. They take a little bit longer um, to get. The unrestricted usually have a good flow of that. So we budget for the unrestricted amounts in our actual budgets, knowing that they're going to be out there trying to raise gifts that will be restricted. And, you know, we've had some good successes over, you know, many years where we always get a, a net that's greater than the, the unre, unrestricted amounts. And so that's how we approach it. Um, the people costs are all in there, and it's mostly what their costs are. They may travel, do some things like that, or hold some events. Um, and every everyone seems to be fine with that. And I think some of that is because they've experienced they usually get more than we budget from the unrestricted gifts, and there's always some larger restricted gifts. And JD already pointed out the 10 gifts with seven figures that we really didn't have three years ago that we've gotten 10 of. Um, and I think that builds upon itself. And so that's how we go about and do it. Okay. Thank you for that. And Jan, if I can piggyback that, Andrew's uh, raising up some uh, some good narrative for people to consider within our industry is that you know that unrestricted budgeted figure is really helpful we're but he mentioned that that restricted uh uh column that mm -hmm. that's the that's the funding of capital projects the funding of dog parks or, or ecology efforts uh, scholarships etc but there's also a permanently restricted column that has really been a focus of ours and that's endowing uh, so any any gifts that come in from an endowment perspective, 
fit within that permanently restricted column, which just means perpetual funding, right? So, so we're not only focused on the immediate, we're focused on endowing those scholarships so that every year those funds are coming in uh, on a regular basis. So it's, it, while it's from a budget perspective, that year to year, you know, paying attention to that bottom line, the unrestricted really is helping that. The long-term you know, budget implications of, of perpetually funding scholarships, perpetually funding brain health and wellness programs. We, we actually have a donor that established an endowment that will create funding just for capital needs at one of our communities. So, so when you're talking about budget impact, it's, it's not just the unrestricted dollars that are flowing through, but we're really laying foundations that will impact Asbury for generations in terms of uh, associate uh, impact, capital impact, et cetera. Yeah. Do you, we didn't um, talk about this yet, but you're, when you talk about capital or innovation, um, I heard we'll talk about some of the types of projects, but do you fund um, things that are true operating expenses or are your projects that you accept and, and fundraise for predominantly like starting things up, building things, more of the capital type needs? Well, so we do have some endowments started to fund uh, wellness and brain health positions okay. to help underwrite some of that cost while it's still in its infancy, it's growing, but that's something that, that donors, and, and much like a university will have endowments for uh, like a professor or, or some role there, the same, like that, again, it's getting out of this because we're a, a long-term care uh, nonprofit world, we should think in this little box. It, it's really we're not doing anything at Asbury that that higher education isn't doing, or that that some of our larger health systems are doing. I think our our industry is intimidated by it. I think uh, I think that's probably the best way to put it. And. And it, once you get rolling, though, once you get it rolling, it, it really just builds upon itself. It's um, if you ever read the book Good to Great that uh, by Jim Collins, it's that flywheel, right? That flywheel just starts moving and moving, and and now you're 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 having. Uh, Andrew mentioned a sixty million dollar uh, portfolio. A large portion of that is in, is endowments, be it some is unrestricted. A good portion is unrestricted, but now we we have uh, restricted endowments that are funding. Those, those roles that are funding those scholarships, that are funding those capital uh, projects. So, yeah, some operational, but, uh, but uh, heavily uh, uh, projects-related uh, perpetual funding that's happening. Okay. But I think it's fair to say that, like, one of the cores of the way we started is with benevolent care, which which is what I would call an operations type thing each year. Yeah. You know, if somebody outlives their means, part of our mission is, you know, if you, you kind of do the right things, you apply, you qualify, you know, we'll, we'll not have you leave the community and we'll use that benevolent care um, money to help you do that. And to me, that's more of an operating mm -hmm. item than it is like, hey, we're going to build yeah. a building or something like that. And and that's part of our core. And I think it, it always will be. I just like the fact that we've added so many other things to it um, where some people might turn away individuals because it doesn't meet that core. We're like, well, wait a minute. Like, what, what's wrong with having a scholarship for nurses or something else that, you know, those are good things to do. It little more work, but um, it just grows upon itself. Yeah, I agree. And we're at about 50, I'd say about 50%-ish, give or take 10%, plus or minus, uh, is the unrestricted uh, funding. 
So, so we're still doing a significant, that, that's an overwhelming majority of the effort that the foundation is, is undertaking. But again, we're seeing that that rise heavily because, you know, that tide that is all the, the, the key areas of focus that we present, people are giving to benevolent care, making sure that's still part of their, their uh, annual giving or lifetime plans. Uh, but then they're adding some special, you know, project or special passion that they have as well to their, to their estate gift or their plan gift or their major gift. Yeah. Love it. I love it. So I know we've talked a lot about residents um, being, you know, contributors to the work that you're doing. Is that the bulk of um, your contributions come from residents? Do you also get corporate or um, grant making organizations supporting your efforts? That's a great question, and it's it's interesting because we do get the question a lot. Well, are you going outside our walls to raise money? And and, and the reality is, again, going back to data, the return on investment. What where are you, where are you spending your time, and what results are you you getting? And that philanthropy and aging services study that I referenced earlier, that Martin Lundy had done. That um, that's a it was a national study that really helped shape the our strategic plan back in in 2020. Uh, that showed that the overwhelming percentage of gifts to a community came from the residents. Mm-hmm. So if you're spending time outside of that, you're you're spinning your wheels. And, and the grant world, yes, we might get a few grants here and there. But if we're not spending time with the people living in our communities, getting to know them, getting to know what where their passion is, what makes their heart beat every day, where do they find the most value in giving? You know, that's that's where we spend our time, getting to know people and understanding where their passion is, and then sharing with them an opportunity to give at our community. We we don't ask a lot for giving because literally we've gotten to know people and we're we are sharing with them where the opportunities are and they're kind of presenting to us some of the things that they'd like to do and that that makes it such a great partnership and and I applaud Andrew I applaud our leadership team and this this is a key I think for our industry to be aware of is there's got to be trust in in that leadership and the communication with that leadership about what it is we're doing you know when we can share a vision for brain health when we can share where we're where we see uh, providing you know, neurological cognitive uh, value to to the older population. When we can show what we're doing as an organization around that, I mean, it, it, and somebody's passionate about it, that's, I mean, we're getting, we had two donors give three million plus just for brain health because that's that's their passion. That's what they were giving to outside our walls when they saw an opportunity to make that happen for their friends and neighbors living there in their community. They they brought that idea up. They wanted to do something. So we we really just uh, aligned that passion and that drive that they had to to the opportunity on the campus level. So, it, it yeah, Andrew's been a great ally. The team, the leadership team here has been a great ally in building that trust that I referenced. And then again, creating the environment where people can be a part of that progress that's happening at the campus level. Perfect. Andrew, what um, do you have anything to add to that? And I'm kind of curious: do you involve your employees in um, contributing? So, so JD is one of the first you know people to meet a new employee, give them a pledge card, and say, hey, you know, you want to sign up for uh, you know whatever community you might want to give. I mean, we get down to that level with our employees, and a lot of yeah, he's running into some some trouble there. I, he's being somewhat facetious. We, uh, Jim, we do, uh, we do engage associates, uh, especially the leadership team in giving. We, they, they've been wonderful partners. Our board has been incredible uh, in terms of their giving. We're, we, 
but the the reality is associates aren't aren't necessarily driving the success. So while we we do want to build that culture and and give people an opportunity, uh, the majority of our time is spent with residents. Um, uh, you know, building opportunities with them and and uh, identifying their passions. Okay. Awesome. Thank you for that. So while we wait, I bet Andrew will pop back on as soon as his connection restores. Um, tell me about your favorite project that you've um, helped to fund. Mm. Oh, by far brain health. Uh, it, it's, and, and of course they're all wonderful. Let me caveat and say that they're, they're, they're all fantastic, but the, the investment that has a, that has happened and has occurred at our communities around brain health has been absolutely amazing to see. It's been beautiful. We we are we have one current, uh, the Roseboro Wellness and Brain Health Center for Excellence that was built in uh, uh, 2022. I think it was our grand opening for that, and uh, that Wellness and Brain Health Center includes a rock wall. It includes rock steady boxing, which is. Uh, a Parkinson's related boxing program. Residents aren't boxing each other. They're working on balance. They're working on, you know, technique and and that uh, connecting those that synapse or you know mm-hmm. to, to so that what what you're envisioning and what you think is going to happen is, is translates into uh, your limbs. Uh, it involves um, innovation and technology like Exer Gaming, which is a giant kind of computer screen where you're testing reaction, memory, et cetera. These, this Brain Health Center was built uh, at our community in Gaithersburg, Maryland. In, and again, we had our grand opening in 2022. And it inspired a donor to fund the same thing at our community up in Mechanicsburg, uh, Pennsylvania. And we expect to begin construction on that later this year. So that those programs have just been absolutely incredible. Uh, and it, it's neat because it's a... You would think in in our older adult population, we would our communities would have more of a presence around neurological disease, more uh, engagement and programming around, um, you know, enhancing your cognitive capabilities uh, and actually working towards living a more excellent life as opposed to just, you know, you you don't use it, you lose it kind of thing. Um, so yeah, brain health has been an area that has just really exploded for us. That's been amazing to see, and we're already seeing the impact. You know, we've had enough time where now we're seeing data mm-hmm. that's showing the benefits to our residents as they participate in the brain health programming uh, within our. Uh, centers for excellence. I love that, that you didn't just build this great brain health center with all these great things that you're actually measuring the impact that it's having, which I'm sure will lead to potentially more donors and more brain health centers on your campuses. A close second, I would say, is our associate uh, scholarships and support. There is nothing I don't think more beautiful when you when you witness an associate come back and express gratitude to our donor family, uh, an associate because they've been able to to fund their education and and become an RN supervisor, become an LPN, and and not just impact their own. Uh, growth, but also, I mean, that impacts their family, higher salaries, higher income. You're just, it's just a beautiful thing when you can see someone grow and know that the the, the donors you work with have, have helped make that happen. Yeah, that's awesome. Tell me about metrics. You've mentioned you're data-driven, and so if senior living executives are listening and they have, um, you know, their own philanthropic arm, what metrics do you measure and do you recommend that others take keep an eye on as it as it relates to philanthropy 
Yeah, and you heard Andrew kind of reference this a little bit earlier, and it's something that that has helped us when it comes to increasing budget, growing the team, et cetera. We have a, a minimum 3.5 ROI requirement for our fundraising team, and um, that was based on, again, I keep referencing that Martin Lundy study because it was a national survey of nonprofit communities that have a development or fundraising uh, effort, and the median uh, return on investment was 3.5. So at Asbury Foundation, we like to think that, you know, we have higher expectations than the median. So we have a minimum requirement of 3.5 ROI or else, you know, you, it's a performance uh, issue for us. Uh, so, and, and that helps. Again, if, if, if finance and accounting and our budget teams know that that's the expectation, they're, they're much more willing to put that investment into growing the team. So that that is our, our that's the biggest metric uh, that, that I put forth. The team gets tired of hearing me say ROI, yeah. but that 3.5 individual ROI is critical. Um, and then then our, um, uh, our events and our activities have to have a minimum of that. We, we, we try to get that same minimum with our events and activities. So if it's going to cost us, you know, $50,000, we should be, uh, you know, raising a, a, at least the 150, 175,000 um, from that event. So that that's, that's the minimum. Uh, we, we hope that we hit higher because again, we, we like to think that we're uh, working towards something better than the, the, the average. Um, so, so those metrics are really what we lift up pretty significantly. I love that you apply the same ROI to your events and that's really smart. So um, congratulations on that. I, I think that's great. You just gave a, a lot of good advice in a short sound bite um, to our, to our industry. So, um, you know, if you were talking to senior living executives today, and hopefully you are. Hi, Andrew. Hey. Sorry about that, guys. I, I don't. No. We're two two feet apart in different rooms. No worries. <laughs> that's that's uh, what what uh, those internet waves do sometimes when they don't work for us. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, I'll give you a chance to tell me about your favorite project that Philanthropy has funded at at Asbury. Well, I probably have a couple, so sorry about that. Um, you know, since I've been here, I saw the conclusion of a really nice, we call it the Rife Center at our Mechanicsburg location. It's a beautiful uh, auditorium hall that's used for multi-purpose. Um, it's really large. We've used it for, you know, training. It's used for... Um, you know, mass or services, it's used for a whole bunch of other things. Um, I, I really like that one. Another large one we did uh, up in our Erie, uh, Pennsylvania campus was um, a, a pool. Uh, it was sort of the completion of, you know, a little bit more of the amenities for that place. And a lot of that money was raised um, through JD's team. And the final one was one he may have already mentioned, which was you know, our first real brain health initiative at our largest campus where we have this sort of boxing studio and, and climbing wall as part of the cornerstone of our next way of looking at, you know, how to, how, how to offer wellness to our residents. And all three of those, I think, have been really interesting. Um, the residents, um, you know, most of them have liked it. Certain people are always like, why are you doing that? But when they get in there and they see it and explain it to them, they, they really think like, wow, that's really cool. And they get used a lot. So those are probably my three favorites. 
Awesome. The next question that we just spoke of was um, the metrics that would indicate success from a philanthropic effort. Um, what metrics do you like to key in on? And JD mentioned, you know, the 3.5 ROI that he holds his staff accountable to both individually and then for events, which is awesome. Do you, as a CFO, do you have other metrics that you're looking at? Well, so that that is a key one for sure. Um, but I also look at so, something I'll call duration. You know, you always wonder if you're in a closed environment. You have residents, some come, some go. You know, can you keep going back to the same base of people and asking them more for each year? It seems to me like you walk into a situation, you see that, and you're like, how does that work? Well, JD and his team have done a really good job over many years really letting people understand how their gifts can make a difference in the resident lives. And I think that's, that's hard to do. It's not like you can't do it, but it's, it's hard to do. And um, for me, if you have a continual level of giving from each one of your organizations, that's another sign of success. It won't show up as a four or five you know, times X ROI. The fact that you can keep repeating that with people, um, I think is a, is a testimony. And that's something I would tell folks that want to start with a philanthropic approach. Know, figure out a way to make that happen because that ultimately is one of these real measures of success that you have people that continue to give year over year. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. And this last question is for both of you. And so we talked about how many senior living organizations, um, if they do do any kind of development, it tends to be focused on the capital or sometimes on benevolence. And um, what, what guidance would you offer to folks that have been I, myopic sounds negative, like I'm being critical, but I mean, it's just the way our industry has been structured. What what guidance would you give them to think a little differently about this? It, when JD and I have done presentations like this, one of the things I'll tell the, the folks in the room is just start somewhere. If you don't have, you know, a, a real long history of a foundation or a philanthropic purpose, start someplace, even if it's as corny as the bake sale or the, the event. Just get that going, get it into your DNA, and then grow upon it. Um, I think that's one of the things that if you keep doing that, you know, it'll really, it'll really help, um, you know, push things forward. And then it'll lead to other things like it did for us. You know, um, it, you we're not just raising money singularly for benevolent care or one specific, you know, capital campaign. Um, but you also want to tie that into what JD and his team have done, which is to tie into that donor passion. Like what's important to you? And you heard JD talk about even prospective residents they'll talk to. They're not even here yet. And I think that pulls them in um, ultimately to the purpose, but maybe also into the community where if you don't take that approach, you might, you know, miss out on something. So, you know, start somewhere, uh, grow upon it and, you know, listen to what your residents tell you are, are their passions. Yeah, thank you, JD. Yeah, I, 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 the only thing I'll add to that is, is take kind of take the leap. Uh, you know, start thinking of philanthropy as a revenue generating division rather than a uh, kind of side group here that uh, if they can raise a little bit here or there, it'll make an impact. Rather, be purposeful with it. Invest. Get this. Get that division operating uh, with that minimum ROI expectation attached to it. Uh, but start investing and grow, and, and then not don't be afraid to to think big, think outside the box with this. Uh, Andrew mentioned the prospective residents. That 
our marketing and sales teams are partners with the foundation. We're not soliciting uh, future residents, but we're in front of them talking about some of the vehicles that might help them move to our community. And, and it, it, even if people don't work alongside of us, it creates that culture of resource that the foundation is here, not just having our hand out as an ask, but actually able to help people fulfill their goals from a financial tax perspective, et cetera. Um, it's just a cultural shift. And and if you're, you know, Andrew's saying, just take that first step. Uh, but unless you're, you, you're willing to invest and really put serious effort into, into uh, a really lucrative uh, division within your organization, you're going to miss out on so much opportunity for impact at your communities. Uh, again, I mean, we're, we're talking about a difference. We, we've more than doubled what, we, what we've uh, done in the past uh, because Andrew and the leadership team here have been willing to invest and grow, grow the team. So um, yes, take that first step, but then, you know, start thinking differently. Don't think like you're just on the side of a sidewalk with a bake sale. Think that you can actually help someone make a transformational impact at, at your community and it'll make amazing operational and, and uh, uh, impact on, on your organization. Yeah, I love And that. I would say, um, Jennifer, just, you know, from Jay, what Jenny's talking about, you know, if you look at the not-for-profit senior living world, it's very collegial. If you want to start this or you're not sure, reach out to somebody that has a good, you know, foundation like an Asbury and ask for some help. Yeah. And I think sometimes if people do that, they'll get, look, learn from our mistakes or learn from what we've done and, and you'll get better faster. You know, I, yeah. we're always willing to help. So I think that's another thing we always tell people, hey, give, give us a call. We'll, we'll try to tell yeah. you what we think will work. I love that. I'm going to ask you for your contact information in just a second, and we'll be sure to link it <laughs> sure. in the in the show notes. But thank you for that offer, and I agree with you. Um, senior living as an industry is collegial. I mean, we are always trying to, I think, help each other to be better in all the all the right ways. So this is awesome, um, JD. One other question: When it comes to um, meeting your residents and their passions, you mentioned that you surveyed your residents, and I'm curious, how often do you do that? Is that a regular practice? It's not regular. Uh, we did it, it uh, at the genesis of our strategic plan uh, efforts. We wanted to see kind of where people viewed us, what our what our brand was among our primary uh, donor family, and uh, it is something that we do periodically. I, I would say on a on a biannual basis is probably where we're at currently. Um, but we're so heavily invested in the relationship process that we're 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 always in front of our donors. We're, we're, we're having drinks with them. We're going to, uh, golf, we're playing rounds of golf or, uh, uh, we're, we're going to breakfast, lunch. We're spending time with our residents on such a regular basis because we've been able to invest in having somebody at each of the communities. So we're, we're pretty well, uh, connected to the pulse of our communities. But, um, from a survey perspective, we're, we're probably doing that every two years at this point. Okay. Thank you. And I'm sure, and, and just to be clear, I'm sure you're also surveying them on customer sat or resident satisfaction oh, yeah. and things yeah. like that. I meant specific to the philanthropic mission and the project. Yeah. 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 And that's philanthropically, we're probably on the bi biannual, but we're, we're regularly serving, surveying our residents when it comes to quality metrics, et cetera. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right. As we wrap up, any final words, anything I didn't ask about that um, either of you want to share? I'll just emphasize: don't don't be afraid to grow. Don't be afraid of the 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 
philanthropic dollars that can come your way and just think differently. I think outside the box and there's there's so much opportunity out there if you're just willing to invest a little bit of time and energy into it. Good advice. And Andrew, I, I love something that you brought up earlier that I'll just say as it relates to that growth, which is um, don't be afraid, it sounds like, to invest in the right people to be your development um, team because you find the right person and it's going to result in three to four X, right? Yeah. Yep, really is. Yep. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I want to thank both of you, J.D. Schumann and Andrew Jenneret. Um, from Asbury Foundation and Asbury Group, respectively. Thank you guys for being um, my guest today on Senior Living Visionaries. I really am excited about what you all are willing to share with our industry around philanthropy because you have taken it in um, a very inspirational direction. And I hope that we all learn from you because we are all, you know, you're you're rising, all boats rise the tides at your foundation, but you're also helping to rise the tide um, of our industry. So thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having us, Jennifer. Yeah. Yeah, thanks so much for the opportunity. Appreciate it. You bet. And so, um, JD, and let's go with you first. Tell us um, how we should contact you. What's the best way to contact you? Sure. Uh, so my email here is jschuman, uh, S-H-U-M-A-N, at asbury.org. Um, and you can reach me there anytime. That's probably the best way to get me. Okay. And your um, website is asburyfoundation.org? Yeah, so www.theasbury.org uh, is our website. Yeah, you'll we're we're about to finish a quiet phase of a hundred-year anniversary campaign, so you'll see a lot of exciting information on there, not just about our strategic plan, but for how philanthropy is going to shape the next hundred years here at Asbury. Thank you, and we'll link all that information um, in the show notes. And I want to also mention the key areas of focus are well defined on your uh, website as well, in case anybody wants to go back and review that. And Andrew, how would we reach you? So same um, naming convention, A Generet, J-E-A-N-N-E-R-E-T at asbury.org. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you both so much. Great. I'm Jennifer Drago, and you've been listening to Senior Living Visionaries podcast, where we explore cutting-edge ideas and breakthroughs shaping the future of the senior living industry. Please subscribe to be notified each time an episode drops at SeniorLivingVisionaries.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Senior Living Visionaries podcast and radio show, where we showcase the leaders and innovators in the industry who are pushing the boundaries and setting the stage for the future in senior living and services. Join us next time as we share the bold ideas and breakthroughs of the industry's most forward-thinking leaders here on Senior Living Visionaries. You've been listening to the Senior Living Visionaries podcast and radio show, where we showcase the leaders and innovators in the industry who are pushing the boundaries and setting the stage for the future in senior living and services. Join us next time as we share the bold ideas and breakthroughs of the industry's most forward-thinking leaders here on Senior Living Visionaries.